This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is brought to you by Soothing Sense. Want to find a safe, effective, and simple way to improve the patient experience? Soothing Sense drug-free adjunct interventions pair essential oils with an inhaler design to help patients feel at ease, managing nausea, anxiety, and discomfort at every stage of care. It smells great, doesn't cause sedation, and can be used autonomously as soon as patients experience discomfort and there's no need for IVs and MD orders. Visit soothing-sense.com forward slash medical to request a free sample kit today. Why are body image and healthy eating so important and what can a committed and inspired nurse do about it? Let's talk all about it with board-certified nurse body image coach, Elisa Sakilayan, right here in episode 338 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith, and this podcast is always about you, your personal and professional development, your career, and sometimes the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative and inspiring interviews like this one with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of nursing, healthcare, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. Thanks from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being a part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And this is a very, very special request. You've probably heard it already. If you find value in this podcast, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. I've created well over 350 episodes now, and that does incur a number of costs. And I'm asking a bold ask in 2021. I'm asking 100 regular listeners to pledge $2 a month for 12 months. That's $24. That's not necessarily even buying me a cup of coffee a month, but it's enough to really help support the production of the show. You can always pledge more and get some awesome premiums in return, but $2 a month for a year would be super awesome. So head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to sign up and show your support for the show. You can also support the show and the Nurse Keith Nation and me by emailing keith at nursekeith.com and setting up a complimentary coaching consult. And if you end up wanting to work with me, you can mention Elisa or you can mention Elisa Coaching or this episode and get 15% off your first coaching package. Anyway, this is episode 338, and my very dear friend and colleague, Elisa Saki-Lyon, is here with us. And Elisa, we're going to talk about how amazing you are and all the great work you do. But the first question I want to ask you is, why is body image so important, especially for women and women of color? What is going on at this time in history that makes this such, such an important issue? Thank you, Keith. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. I'm really honored to be here to chat with you and connect with you on a colleague level and also on a nurse and professional level. So thank you. Um, So the question of why is body image so important to our community and to women of color? Um, Well, one is that um, body image is one of the leading causes and risks to eating disorders. And, you know, kind of going off of my own personal journey, um, body image was at the root of um, me getting and uh, recovering from a binge eating disorder. And 
a lot of, I don't, I don't think a lot of people know this, but eating disorders is the leading cause of death that has the highest mortality rate out of all the mental illnesses um, at 10%. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's astounding. And so I think body image is so important, especially for women of color, because as a woman of color living in our society that is focused on the standard um, ideals of beauty, of white, tall, thin, young, heterosexual women, it's very, uh, women of color uh, are at a higher risk and are very vulnerable to having body dissatisfaction, body dysmorphia, thus leading to other mental health conditions such as depression, anxiety, and and eating disorders. Hmm. And so you're coming from a, from personal experience and you're a Filipina American, you're second generation. And in our conversations personally, offline, as friends, you've shared with me that in that particular, that particular culture, the Philippinex culture, there are pressures and ways of looking at body image and food that can be pretty damaging to women and to young girls. What is it about a culture like the Philippinex culture that causes this sorts of distress, what happens? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, Keith, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, so being a second-generation Filipina-American, so my parents migrating or immigrating from the Philippines to here, America, um, I think it goes really deep. <laughs> it goes really deep back into, you know, the, the colonization and coming to America to... Um, live the American dream and assimilating to the American ways. Um, In my culture growing up, I feel like there were a lot of comments around body image and weight and skin color and even features such as um, having a pointy nose that are in comparison to those of um, our American and and white culture here. So hearing those messages growing up at a very young age shaped the way I personally thought about my body image. So I felt like I couldn't fit in. Um, And that was so profound because, you know, we're coming to America wanting to fit in and um, acculturate um, and so the compounding effects of hearing those messages, not just from society, and also, but also my family, was really um, distressing. And not to say that I blame, I completely blame my family or my culture for um, these thoughts, but I actually have a lot of compassion. I have so much love and compassion for my family and my culture. One, for having the bravery and um, the courage to move to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, because they only taught us or taught me what they knew. And to them, it's not in a malicious uh, way. It is 
a form of, in a way, a form of survival. Mm-hmm. It was their way of um, surviving here in America. Right. So you're not blaming, but you're recognizing that there were cultural forces at play. And your parents coming here as first generation Philippine Americans, they did the best they could with the tools they had, and they wanted the best for their children for the next generation. And that's a large part of why they came, right? They wanted their children to have great opportunities. And here you are, a nurse and a professional. And your practice that you've created as a board-certified nurse coach, you're also a yoga teacher, a Reiki practitioner, and you specifically work empowering women of color to use a holistic lens and strategies to heal their body image issues. And you say in your bio that you like to bridge science, spirituality, and culture. What is it about bridging those three things that you think is most important? Because you're coming from the cultural lens, you're coming from the allopathic lens as a nurse, and also the holistic lens because you're a Reiki practitioner and a yoga teacher. So what is it with the combination of all of those that you think is that that secret ingredient that can help specifically women of color make those really important shifts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. That's um, amazing. I think when it comes to working with women of color and talking about science, spirituality, and culture, all three factors, those are the three pillars of, of my coaching and Um, those three factors coming together create a more impactful and lifelong, um, lifelong shifts in, um, being able to own this body and body sovereignty beyond, beyond our appearance. I think everyone has different learning styles, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it was really helpful for me to know the science behind body image and our thoughts and um, understanding the different neurotransmitters that fire like dopamine, serotonin, endorphins when we eat or when we lose weight, right? It's that instant gratification, that reward system. And so as a nurse and having a science background, I think being able to hone and harness that helped me um, better understand that these thoughts were um, coming from my brain, but they were able, I can rewire those thoughts by Mm. thinking new thoughts. Mm. And the science is important, right? Because nutrition is, is a science and there's also an art behind how we coach people through nutritional changes. Because sometimes we do have to make nutritional changes, especially if we have disordered eating, because we could be damaging ourselves through disordered eating. And I want to talk about men in a little bit because we we focus mostly on women when it comes to dysmorphia and body image and eating disorders. However, men figure in here too, though it doesn't get talked about in our culture much. But speaking of women, what, what do you find are some of the commonalities among the women you work with? that they bring to the table is, and has anything surprised you? The commonalities in regards to their, how they view their bodies, mm-hmm. the damage that's been done and what they bring to the table in terms of 
okay, here I'm going to spill my guts. Like, this is what's going on for me. How do I, how do I change tracks? Can you please help me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, most of the commonalities be- between the women that I've worked with are very focused on weight and mm-hmm. losing weight or fitting this, like I said, this ideal that society or the media um, emphasizes and favors and feeling like they are othered or alienated or don't fit in. Um, Also, they express a lot about their childhood and how their childhood at a very young age, they have heard these messages about their body. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to do with the weight or losing weight. Um, There have been women who expressed that when they were younger, they were made fun of for their Tagalog accent, their, their Filipino accent, and how that has affected how they perceive their body. Hmm. Interesting. So people bring cultural things. They also bring the damage that's been done from things people have said, from the media, and so many other factors. Has anything surprised you when you when you've been doing this work that you never thought of before that someone brought to you saying this is one of my core issues that I feel is is really at the root of what's going on with me? Yeah, one of the women I can remember who was in my group coaching program, she brought to the table this obsession she had with eating sweets. Mm-hmm. She could not stop eating her candy, her cakes, her pastries, and especially during times of stress, loneliness, boredom. And after talking to her more about her relationship around that, she said that sweet was a way for her to feel connected with herself because it gave her more energy and the energy that she would have, um, she felt like that kind of energy is something other people were attracted to. Hmm. Um, So it was her way of shifting her personality in a way to be better um, approved by others. Um, Hmm. So that was really interesting. You know, I think, a lot of times we try to um, change something like, for example, she, all she wanted to do was just stop eating sweets. You know, like she was trying so hard to just white knuckle through that. Right. But getting to the beliefs around why we're eating certain foods or behaving these um, ways, that was kind of like a light bulb to her, you know, getting really to the root of our beliefs because our beliefs and our thoughts are what drive our emotions and our feelings and, and that in turn drives our actions and that leads to our results. So um, I think that was a surprise to me. And it also just opens my eyes to, you know, emotional eating. I think emotional Mm -hmm. eating has been frowned upon in our society and 
I actually beg to differ because it's okay to emotionally eat sometimes if we are Mm -hmm. recognizing and acknowledging what that emotion is and making the intentional decision to one, choose another activity that will help cope with that emotion or two, Mm -hmm. choosing to eat, knowing that that's something that's going to help or, you know, help you in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I want to go to my favorite natural foods restaurant downtown and I'm, I've had a really hard day and the best thing I feel like I can do right now is go down there and have a matcha and have a piece of banana cream pie. Like that's what I really need and want right now. And if I make a conscious choice to do that, that's cool. If I just go down there and stuff myself and stuff my feelings and I don't recognize what's really going on, then that's another story, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Is that a good example? Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to self-disclose something here because I do like to be transparent on this show. And I've talked about living with depression. I've talked about post-traumatic stress in the past. And I believe that I had an eating disorder when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And you and I have talked about this before. And I do believe it was a form of anorexia and disordered eating. And I do still have what I believe is dysmorphic body image. I don't always see myself as I truly am. And disordered eating is something that has kind of reared its ugly head periodically throughout my life, even now in my 50s. And I'm, I deal with it well, and it's something that I sometimes struggle with. And I'm on a really good track right now at this point in my life. And you've actually really helped me a lot, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. You've Even just through watching your Instagram videos and seeing the things that you post, I've really, it's really affected my consciousness. I just want to say that. So as a man divulging that eating and body image issues have been with me since actually childhood. And I can remember specific stories of things that happened because I was kind of a chubby kid and I was ridiculed a lot, even by adults in my life, family members. How many men do you think actually have either an eating disorder or at least dysmorphic body image? What do you think? How pervasive is that? Well, first of all, thank you, Keith, for openly sharing your story and um, your journey around that. Um, I really honor you for having, being able to share that, that personal story with your audience. Um, Thank you. Not easy, not easy. No, it's not. Um, To answer your question, I think it's just as pervasive in men, you know, because Mm. there's a lot of, this um, focus on men being macho or masculine or having these, you know, strong physical features. And it's the Mm -hmm. same way with women. And I think historically eating disorders have been associated with heterosexual, young, white females, but in reality, and this is according to the National Eating Disorder Association, they Mm -hmm. affect People from all demographics, all gender, all ethnicities at similar rates. They don't discriminate between, you know, gender, age, ethnicity, gender identity, any of that. And if it doesn't discriminate, 
but our culture focuses on women, then I'm assuming that that does damage to men because men are ashamed, obviously, of talking about it because they think there's something wrong with them because other men don't talk about it. And that's one reason being public about it, I think, is a good thing as a man, right? So if our if the media feeds into it and sometimes our family members and our friends and our colleagues and acquaintances and everything we see and feel and hear and touch affects us then how do we how do we push back what's what's the first step in realizing that okay something's going on what's that first thing that has to happen for someone to say okay i'm going to do something mhm uh-huh, uh-huh. well one i think is just being really really honest with ourselves and um, doing just what we're doing right now is having open and honest and inviting, welcoming, compassionate, empathetic conversations around this. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there aren't enough spaces for women of color and also men to talk about body image or our relationship to food. And that is really alarming because if we can just normalize these conversations and by having these conversations with people, it releases that shame. And I think that because there is an association with eating disorders and, you know, the white health and women, there, there's as a result, an underreporting of, problems by the individual. Um, There is a misdiagnosing on the part of the provider and Mm -hmm. there's cultural and gender biases of the criteria for eating disorders. And I think that if we can just have more conversations around it and um, have open spaces, I think that would be the first step. So open spaces for conversations about body image, about eating issues, about disordered eating, about how men and women both are affected, possibly equally, but we just haven't acknowledged it. And you've created an open, safe space specifically for women of color. That's really where you've been focused and where your your practice really finds its, its grit, right? That's the traction that you've found. And through your work, you, you work in groups. You mentioned group coaching, and that's very important. And your videos and the stuff you write and what you put out on social media, I find specifically incredibly helpful for myself. So I do read and I sometimes comment on your posts, especially on Instagram. What other kind of work do you do? Do you work individually as well? And if you do work individually, is there anything different about the group and individual coaching that you find is really significant? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I so I do groups, which I think is great because it has this open community and other women of color can share their stories and provide feedback and insight. And when we heal in community, it also helps heal within ourselves and, and more. It becomes this ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Um, with one-on work, so I still also do one-on-one work. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And it's a pretty similar framework and programming to the groups. You know, we have specific topics that we go over each week 
And the cool thing about one-on-one coaching is that, you know, the, the, the client is always the driver of the conversation. So they bring mm-hmm. to the table what they would like to talk about. And then it expands into this beautiful um, co-creation, this partnership, because, you know, I think with one-on-one coaching, um, when we talk about one aspect of our life, it bleeds into other aspects of our wellness and our health. So when I can work with someone one-on-one, it gives them the space to really open up their full and truest selves in that, in that container. Um, Mm -hmm. And so with the one-on-one, it, it, I wouldn't say it's much different than the coaching program other than you get the full focus of me for that entire session. And then I offer any, you know, tools or resources that might be helpful and um, in a- accomplishing your goals for the upcoming week. That's great. And for one-on-one clients who work with you, on their body image or eating issues, et cetera, do they also participate in groups or do some of them participate in groups at the same time? Mm, that's a really good question um, because I don't, so one-on-one is just one-on-one, you know, it's mm-hmm. a program container for 12 weeks typically. And then I have the groups, which is for 12 weeks, just groups. Um, however, I have thought about creating a hybrid because I've worked with one-on-one individuals who do seek and yearn for that community support. Um, Mm -hmm. So right now that's not happening, but maybe in the future. So thank you for that. Um, Sure. Yeah. Yeah, It sounds like the one-on-one work is important because maybe in community there's, there's all that support, but maybe sometimes the shame gets in the way and it's hard to speak your truth in front of so many people. And the one-on-one sounds like for certain people, it'd be really important to just have your focused attention and not feel not feel on the spot in front of other people. And I just want to say that the work you're doing is really important. And in the second half, I want to talk about nurses. I want to talk about how many nurses are women, of course, about 90%. And Many are women of color, and they bring the same issues to the table as the general population because they're part of the general population. So it's not like nurses are some distinct group who don't have these issues. So I'd like to talk about nurses living with this and working with this, and also how to bring this consciousness to their work with patients and recognize some of the signs and maybe how they can talk to people about these issues. So does that sound like a good plan? That sounds great. Great. So hang in there with us and we're going to be right back for the second half of this awesome episode of the Nurse Keith Show with Elisa Saki-Lyon of Elisa Coaching. And this is Nurse Keith, episode 338. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. This episode of the Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Soothing Sense. Nurses are busier than ever with increasing pressure to ensure high patient satisfaction rates while keeping risks low. Queez Ease by Soothing Sense was designed to do just that. 
Developed by a nurse anesthetist and delivered in an innovative, personalized inhaler system, Queezy's is a drug-free adjunct therapy that intercepts the nausea cycle when and as discomfort arises without the need for IVs, dosage requirements, or an MD order. With Queezy's, nurses can feel empowered knowing they have another tool in their toolbox to achieve patient comfort, which is why it's used and loved in over 2,500 hospitals across the United States. Visit www.soothing-sense.com forward slash medical. That's soothing-sense.com forward slash medical to request a free sample kit or to find out more about Queezy's and the full Soothing Sense comfort range, including formulas for anxiety, congestion, and fatigue. I have a Soothing Sense sample kit here in my home, and I can honestly tell you I totally love it. And you can also follow them on Instagram at soothing underscore sense. And I thank Soothing Sense for their generous support. Speaking of generous support, right now I'm asking 100 regular listeners of The Nurse Keith Show to please consider becoming a patron for just $2 a month. Producing over 350 episodes of the podcast has incurred and will continue to incur many costs, and I appreciate my patrons so very much. If you enjoy the show, you can always continue listening for free, but please consider becoming a patron for just $2 a month or more if you want to get some cool premiums and gifts and visit P-A-T-R-E-O-N, that's patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to sign up and show some love for the Nurse Keith Show. Also, please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so that you can receive my bi-weekly message. And finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, consider referring them. If they become a paying client, you receive credit for an hour of coaching with me and there's no expiration date on that credit so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. And I think that's an awesome deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, my friends. So now let's dig back into today's topic. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember the show notes where you can learn all about Elisa coaching and Elisa Saki Lyon, my dear friend and colleague, will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 338. And Elisa, we're here today talking about some really tender issues. This is really vulnerable stuff. And I shared a little bit about my own journey with eating issues and dysmorphia and disordered eating. And we were talking just before the break about individual coaching versus group coaching and what that means and why one might be better for somebody than the other. And when then we talked about how maybe a hybrid of that could be potential for your practice in the future. But what I wanted to ask you is, what would you say to a nurse out there, male or female? Let's just be frank about it, that it could be either. What would you say to them if they're struggling with body image issues and disordered eating. Is there any special message you have for a nurse mm -hmm. in that particular position? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that question. I think it's so important to address nurses and also healthcare, healthcare professionals who might feel like they're experiencing any kind of distress around food or their body image, mm -hmm. eating disorders or disordered eating. Um, and I just like to kind of share a little bit about my own story because being a nurse myself and working in um, a very renowned for a very renowned company at a clinic 
I felt like I felt so defeated when I discovered that I was struggling with a binge eating disorder because in mm. my mind, I was like, how can I be this healthcare advocate and mental health advocate who, you know, strives to promote wellness for all of my patients and my clients. And here I am struggling with my own body image and my own disordered eating. Um, there was a lot of shame around that because mm -hmm. I felt like I had to be this person who was, you know, fully and completely healthy. And that's not the case. That's very unrealistic, actually. <laughs> Everyone. Isn't it? Yeah. And there's that word again, shame, right? Mm -hmm. So nurses might feel, I guess what you're saying, they could feel shame because they should have it together. And they could say to themselves, how can I actually be a, a, um, a good clinician and guide my patient towards mental health or physical health when I've got it going on, mm -hmm. right? And I don't have my own stuff healed. What does someone do when they realize they've got an issue, but they also want to support themselves personally to still be the clinician they know they are and then deal with their own stuff too? Mm -hmm. What, how do they, how do they address both of those things? Mm -hmm. Well, so to answer your question prior, um, Keith, you know, what I would tell nurses or healthcare, healthcare professionals is that, you know, release that shame. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It is mm -hmm. totally okay to be a work in progress while helping other people at the same time. Um, I had a lot of imposter syndrome around being a body image coach while still struggling with my own body image. And I think that's what makes it so beautiful is that we are all human. We are all perfectly imperfect. We are exactly where we're supposed to be in our journeys. And if we can still work on ourselves while empowering other people to do the same, like, I think that's. I think that's awesome. I think that's, that's so beautiful and um, um, synchronistic. Is that a word? I don't even know if that's a word. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Carl Jung would like that. Synchronicity. So if we are works in progress and we are, right, we could be a nurse living with cancer or living with early onset dementia or maybe garden variety hypertension or hyperlipidemia, or maybe we're struggling with morbid obesity, right? And we know that we have to do something because it's stressing our organs and we know that there could be negative consequences, right? And at the same time, we don't want to be ashamed and we want to just embrace who we are, right? So that's, that's a, as nurses, we're just like everybody else, right? We've got our things. And isn't there a certain level of empathy we can bring when we're clinicians who recognize our own humanity and that we're a work in progress? Doesn't that figure into this as clinicians? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Having that empathy and that compassion towards ourselves, the same way we would offer that compassion towards our patients and our clients, you know, the firm compassion fatigue um, is so prevalent in our um, in our nurses. And 
being mm-hmm. able to slow down, to slow down, mm-hmm. breathe, pause, um, so that we can, you know, really take care of ourselves so that we can also take care of, you know, our community and our patients. Right. Right. Now, speaking of taking care of patients, if I'm a nurse and I'm working, let's say in, I don't know, let's say primary care, right? And, or I'm a nurse practitioner or a doctor, whatever, but I notice that I think a patient has something going on in terms of either disordered eating, or I think they could have an eating disorder. And I just, I have this sense either from objective data or I just, my intuition is telling me, how do you tenderly and compassionately and empathically try to address it? How do you like make that turn in your treatment of that person and, and mention it? What do you do? And how do you do it in a way that's actually going to be therapeutic and helpful? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one, as a, as a health professional, recognizing these um, behaviors, whether it's objectively or listening to your intuition and your gut, um, really trusting that and knowing that it takes a lot of guts for someone to even talk about their body image or their relationship to food. So if mm-hmm. there's one, if they're giving any hints at all, not to be afraid to step in and lean into that empathy and compassion and say something like, hey, I'm hearing you say X, Y, and Z about your body or X, Y, and Z about food. Um, I would love to support you around that or I would love to offer you some resources or additional support if that's something you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Is that something you're interested in? Would you like any additional resources or help around this subject? I see. So you're saying something like, I noticed that, right? You're not, you're not pointing a finger. You're not casting blame or shame. You're just saying, I noticed that, right? That you've mentioned something about being fat today, or you mentioned something about your husband giving you a hard time about eating certain foods. You've mentioned that twice. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is like showing, um, how would you say it? Maybe empathic curiosity. So you just ask open questions, right? Not yes or no questions. Mm -hmm. And you sort of just open the door. Is that, is that sort of the gentle approach we need to take so that someone doesn't become defensive? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Having that open ended questioning, um, and also offering that support, you know, cause I think this is something that a lot of folks don't think they need extra support around. And mm-hmm. that's totally fine. If, you know, I, the worst thing is to have someone get defensive, right. And, and say like, no, but as long as you're, <laughs> you know, as a health professional offering that this is something that you're concerned about and that there are resources if they'd like it, if they need it. Right. Okay. Now, speaking of resources, I don't necessarily want to push you in the direction of like 
critiquing or casting aspersions on nutritionists or dietitians. But I think we can all recognize that within a practice or profession, nursing, medicine, nutrition, dietetics, physical therapy, psychiatry, there's main people who adhere to the mainstream and there's people who veer in other directions and maybe have other influences in the ways that they look at things and practice. How do we know that we're going to be sending someone to the right place and the right resource for what there's going on, especially when it comes to an eating disorder? Because nutritionists and dietitians are great, but we could be sending them to a person that's actually going to maybe maybe attack it from the wrong direction Mm -hmm. or address it from the wrong direction. So how do we vet our resources to know we're sending someone to the right place? Uh, That is such a good question. And I don't even know if I have an answer for that because how do, how do we know? How do Mm -hmm. we know as health professionals or health or or providers know if we're sending them to the quote unquote right person? Um, Mm -hmm. For me personally, I have worked with a nutritionist and a dietitian who were um, who were in favor of this diet culture, and okay, um, okay. I as a as a patient experiencing that, I had to understand within myself and in, and tune into my own intuition to determine whether or not this type of service or this type of advice that I was getting was going to be helpful for me. And um, the way I did that was, you know, one, does does the referral or does the provider that I'm speaking with right now really understand the, or have knowledge around eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. And two, are they really listening to me? Like, are they really listening to what I want and what, um, you know, what my needs are? For example, I've told a nutritionist or um, a dietitian that I really don't like gluten. It really harms my stomach. So are they really listening mm-hmm. to me and following those kinds of instructions? And and I feel like as um, a patient who has received that kind of service, it it really, I, was, I had to really tune into my intuition there. Mm-hmm. And walking out of that session, knowing that my body is sacred and knowing mm-hmm. that I could eat intuitively. Um, yeah, that I can eat intuitively. I think there's a time and place for um, meeting with a dietitian and nutritionist and, you know, taking upon the patient's um, values and aligning with their values. Right. Right. And their culture mm-hmm. and their history and where they're coming from and, Maybe there are other comorbidities, things they have going on. And you're right. It is, I think we keep circling back to the same thing of listening. That's kind of where we started this conversation was talking about listening. And I think as providers, we show we need to show curiosity and ask those questions. And we also have to show 
curiosity and empathy to with ourselves. Like I talked about, you know, my own my own journey. And I was seeing a nutritionist about six or seven years ago. And she was incredibly tuned in and listened so well. And she really heard what I had to say about my relationship with certain foods and how, you know, just because my relationship with a certain food might be somewhat disordered or not quite healthy, that she wouldn't say, oh, just stop eating that. Like, just don't buy it anymore. Right. Because she knew that that isn't necessarily the right advice, is it? So we need to be able to find people who who can really speak our language and mm-hmm. and meet us where we need to be. And if I'm a nurse in primary care and I find that I'm encountering a lot of, let's say, women who are exhibiting symptoms of eating disorder or dysmorphia, I might want to take it upon myself to reach out to a couple of nutritionists in the area or within the larger system that I work in and maybe have an informational interview with them and say, hey, you know, can we sit down for coffee? I want to talk about some patients I have, you know, adhering to HIPAA, of course, and say, I'd like to know how you approach these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can refer somebody to you. Do you think that's a viable option to take it upon ourselves to vet people? Yeah, exactly. I think creating that relationship and having that circle of referrals at in your back pocket and knowing what their expertise is and what their specialty is and what kind of culture they're coming from or the language that you're saying they speak so that we can better refer our clients and our patients to the appropriate person. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And you work with women of color and you work with women from a number of cultures. Have you encountered anyone from certain cultures in the course of your life and your work where you feel like these sorts of issues appear to be less pervasive? Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, mm, I think across the board, it's pretty pervasive. I've actually worked with also a white woman who. Is struggling with, you know, her body image or has struggled with her body image as well and her relationship to food. You know, I think it's pretty prevalent across all culture, all cultures, really. There's not mm-hmm. one culture that stands out to me that, yeah, that is less um, or that has less of these concerns around body image and the relationship to food. That's sad, isn't it? That's a really sad statement. And you know, it would be really interesting and probably very illuminating. I know there are not many, but there are several hunter-gatherer tribes still in different parts of the world that have remained relatively untouched by the technological world and the the hyper-industrialized world that we live in. And, you know, we're you know, the internet and advertising and all those sorts of things don't touch them and movies and television shows and those magazine covers that show you how to get a six pack and that sort of thing. So I'd be very interested to, to understand the relationship with food and body that people in those cultures have. And sadly, there aren't that many left, but it would be really fascinating to know And I recently heard a podcast, I can't remember who the person was, but it was on Alan Alda's podcast 
um, clear and vivid. And it's a man who spent, he spent a large majority of his professional life living with a hunter-gatherer tribe, and he was studying communication. But just imagine in a world without the media, without all those influences, what what would happen? Like how how would we see ourselves and food? And wouldn't it be interesting just to be able to understand what goes on for them and maybe the ways in which they would look at us <laughs> and have an opinion about us? So do you think it's in that sense sorry for the long diatribe, but it just kind of came up for me right now. Do you get a sense that it truly is possible for people to live in this particular culture that we live in, this society, and really heal our eating and body issues and live a life where they're not really impacting us on a daily level, psychically and otherwise? Is it possible? Absolutely. I think it's so mm-hmm. possible. And I love that you bring up that example because in the work that I do as well is helping women of color come back to themselves, like their true selves, who they mm-hmm. are at their root. And even if that means going back to their parents and learning about their stories or learning about the importance of food in their cultures. Um, knowing how their ancestors like back then were hunter gatherers, farmers and their appreciation for food. So taking those Mm -hmm. same kinds of rituals that embody their culture, for example, you know, in my culture, we um, try our best. We don't do this all the time, but saying a prayer of gratitude before eating meals and being able to put those kinds of rituals back into practice helps folks come back to their core of who they are and also helps them slow down, have mm-hmm. more appreciation for the food that is going to nourish their bodies and appreciate their bodies um, that is beyond the physical. Right. You know, understanding that at their core, this is who they are. These are their strengths. These are their values. Because before cars, before you know, exercising, our ancestors were walking through fields, and they had, you know, do you know how much appreciation you have to have for your body to walk miles and miles and miles, and mm-hmm. just the miracle of of life. It is. It is. And yeah, I think that's. That's a great message that we really can use gratitude. We can use consciousness, right? Being conscious of what we're doing and the choices we're making. Why am I buying this? Why am I eating this particular thing? What kind of joy does it bring me? Or what kind of what kind of distress does it bring me when I eat this particular thing? And why why are these the chosen rituals that I participate in or not? And I can only imagine, because I haven't participated in your groups because I'm not a woman of color, but I can only imagine the powerful conversations that happen between women, women across different cultures, an African-American woman talking to a Philippinex woman and seeing like, oh, wow, yeah, that's very similar to what I experienced as a child. Or wow, I heard that message when I was a young woman, you know, just emerging into young adulthood. So. 
in your work at Elisa Coaching, you work with individuals, you work with groups. It's majority is women of color. So you've worked with some people outside of that particular niche that you've developed. And you're a nurse entrepreneur and also a, a working nurse clinician. So what is it like? What has it been like the journey of creating your own business and becoming a nurse business owner and entrepreneur? How's that been for you? It's been so rewarding and so fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And Keith, I have to give you a lot of credit and gratitude too, because you were there with me. You know, I hired you as a career coach um, when I was trying to navigate between going full-time into my nursing career and working at the clinics or in the community or starting mm -hmm. a business. And you really helped introduce me to the community of nurse entrepreneurs and leaders and helped me realize that this is, you know, I'm not alone. I'm not alone and no, that this not. is so possible. So it's honestly been being an entrepreneur has been one of the most healing journeys I've ever been on because it really challenged some of my deep <laughs> rooted traumas that I thought I have healed from and being able to face those traumas that have resurfaced again as an adult has been so empowering and knowing that I can share my story and my journey and, um, create these open spaces for other women of color and beyond um, to help, you know, heal them and not just them, but really create this ripple effect that helps heal their future children or their descendants mm -hmm. and also, um, you know, their, their parents and their family. And, you know, it's just been such a beautiful and rewarding journey, hard, but definitely well worth it. Oh, that's, that's a great vision and a great mission. You just shared your mission, basically, which is that ripple effect, right? And you're not just impacting the women you're working with, you're impacting their daughters and sons and the people who will come after them, their descendants after that, right? And their friends and family and the messages they'll share with other people and they'll inspire others. So this work you're doing is super important. And it's inspiring to me because it's it's touched on things that I live with and have dealt with. And it's inspiring me to watch you grow as a nurse entrepreneur. And your, your social media presence is so positive and so beautiful and so spiritually and emotionally sophisticated and, and empowering that I love seeing you when you pop up. And I look for your stuff all the time, especially on Instagram. That's my happy place. So I hang out there and I see what you post in your videos. So thanks for, for creating such a safe space for, especially for women of color to deal with these issues. And thanks for being out there doing such, such wonderful work in the world. Mm, thank you so much, Keith. I really do appreciate it. And your support is infinite in, in my journey. So thank you so much for those words. Oh, thank you. And, you know, you and I met in person at the 
event we finally met in person at the National Nurses and Business Association in Vegas in 2019, right before the pandemic. And Catherine Ford Richter was there, Catherine of the Solar RN, and our friend Tierra Owen, and lots of other people. And we had a lot of fun. And um, we got to hang out in Vegas and really, really get to know one another. And that was a great experience too. So we'll we'll do all of that again. And you know, people can find you at Elisa Coaching. It's A L Y S S A elisacoaching.com. And we'll make sure people can find you through the show notes on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And Elisa Sakilayan, you're such a good friend and such a wonderful nurse and doing great work in the world for women. And thanks for gracing the airwaves. And this won't be the last time. Thank you so much for having me here and for sharing my story. And, you know, if anyone out there just wants to connect and is feeling like they resonate with this work that I do, I would be happy to just connect with all of you or any of you who are feeling called. Great. Well, thank you. And there you have it. Thanks for listening to this very inspiring episode of the Nurse Keith Show. I know we were talking about some very tender subjects here. And if something has come up for you that you would that you feel you need to discuss, you can definitely reach out to Elisa. Go to the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 338. And from there, you can reach out to her through her website or through her social media platforms. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I encourage you to take some inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional growth and development. If you need holistic career coaching, look no further than nursekeith.com. Mention Elisa for this episode number 338 and you can get 15% off your first coaching package rather than the usual 10%. And again, please consider becoming a patron. I'm asking a hundred regular listeners in 2021 to pledge $2 a month for 12 months. So please consider doing me the honor of becoming a patron. The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. My thanks to them for including me in this amazing array, this growing array of incredible healthcare and health-related podcasts. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy-Speeson, as always, is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my very dear friend, Elisa Sakilayan, saying arrivederci from... Sunny San Mateo, California. Sunny San Mateo. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.